Let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed how quickly we can feel entitled? Now, some of you are thinking, hey, wait a minute. I don't feel entitled. I mean, I know some people who feel entitled, but I'm not one of them. You might actually feel a little more entitled than you, than you realize. Our culture raises us to feel entitled. It's something that naturally rises up in us, especially those of us in the United States and in Western culture. It's, it's just ingrained in the very fabric of our society and our culture. Let me give you an example. If you have ever been to a large sporting event, then you're probably familiar with the T-shirt cannon. Yes? Shoots T-shirts up. Um, the, the, the team mascot and, and their assistants will, you know, walk along in front of the crowd during breaks in the action and then shoot these T-shirts up into the crowd. Now, if a T-shirt comes to you, you feel great. But if the people shooting shirts up into the stands never even come near where you're sitting, how does that make you feel? Now, we may not want to admit it, but for most of us, there's a twinge of feeling that we have been treated unfairly. And where does that feeling come from? It comes from us feeling entitled to one of those t-shirts, or at least to having a good chance at getting one. But let me ask you this, was getting a t-shirt guaranteed on our admission ticket for the game? No. Did anyone with any authority promise us that we would get a t-shirt at the game? No. Is there a rule somewhere that states we're owed a t-shirt? No. Would it be considered a breaking of the contract if there were no shirts at all given at the game? No. The truth is, we weren't entitled to a t-shirt, so we have nothing to complain about. Those who got a t-shirt were simply the fortunate few. And even if the t-shirts had been given to some predetermined people, so that the whole thing was rigged about who actually got shirts that day, we still don't have anything to complain about. We weren't owed a t-shirt. We didn't deserve a t-shirt. We, we, we observe similar kinds of thinking in lots of situations, don't we? I mean, maybe you have a certain seat you like to sit in at church. Or you have a certain parking spot at work that you like to park your car. And what happens if someone is sitting in that seat? or they have parked their car in that spot. You're annoyed because you feel entitled. People feel entitled. Some more than others, but it is a common attitude among us whether we like to admit it or not. We'll come back to that later today. Today, we have come to what 
are considered the most difficult and confounding chapters in the letter of Romans. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. So if you have your Bible, you can start making your way over to Romans chapter 9. The first eight chapters of the letter are about how we are made righteous by God, how we receive salvation. And the last five chapters of the letter, chapters 12 through 16, they talk about how people who have received salvation are to now live. Between these chapters are the three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, which might seem a little out of place. Romans 8 ends with those powerfully encouraging words about God's unquenchable love for us. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done are God's children now. And nothing can prevent the Lord's ultimate good purpose for us from being fulfilled. Chapters 9 through 11, they address what we might call the Jewish question. If the Jews have been God's chosen people throughout history, why have they in large part rejected the Messiah, refusing to receive the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ? This is what Paul talks about in these chapters. Paul begins by declaring his personal heartbreak over the Jewish people's refusing to believe in the Messiah, Jesus. Romans 9, verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God forever, over all, forever praised. Amen. The Jews enjoyed the blessings and privileges of being God's special people throughout history, including the receiving of the law of God, being the descendants of the patriarchs, being the people from whom the human ancestry of the Messiah comes. They should have been the most enthusiastic people of all to recognize and receive the Messiah and enjoy the blessings that come along with that. But sadly, that has not been the case. Why? Why have the Jews not recognized their promised, long-awaited Messiah? This is what Paul addresses in these coming verses. In verse 6, he says, It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this, is, this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So Paul says, it's not because God's promises failed. God's word is good and true. Paul begins by making the point that not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Not everyone 
who is a Jew by biological bloodline is really a Jew. You might remember he actually uh, made this point before in Romans chapter 4. Paul gives two examples from the patriarchs to show that God's sovereign hand is at work in the lives of people. And the first example is here. God promised to give Abraham a son who would be the avenue through whom the fulfillment of God's great promises to Abraham would come. Abraham had two sons, one son by his own scheming, Ishmael, and then another son by God's promise, Isaac. And Isaac was the one through whom the fulfillment of the promises would come. And in verse 10, here's the second example. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the second example that Paul gives is the children of Isaac and Rebekah. They had two sons, the twins, Esau and Jacob. Before the boys were born, God told them that Jacob was the chosen one through whom God's promises would be fulfilled. It was by God's choice rather than because of anything that either of the two boys had done. It had happened before they were even born. Now the phrase in verse 13 needs a little bit of explanation probably. God is quoted to have said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that word hated, it's not being used in the same exact way that we usually use the word ourselves. There's a Hebrew idiom or expression at play here. This was a way they would express a strong contrast between two things. And in this case, one child was chosen and one child was not chosen. The choosing of one person over another, it may seem unfair to some. Has God been unfair? This is the question that Paul addresses in these next verses. In verse 14, he says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he, has, on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So to the question, is God unjust, is God unfair, Paul responds with a resounding, not at all. God will have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. His mercy uh, being given is not determined by human desire or effort, but by God himself alone. Now on the surface, that may sound like double talk to our modern Western mind. We think that doesn't say anything. It doesn't answer the question for us. And the, the difficulty we have with following Paul's argument here is that we naturally come from a very human-centered point of view. We reference everything from ourselves. We think of ourselves as the center of the universe. 
And further, in Western culture especially, we have it ingrained into our thinking that we are basically good. And we are entitled to the best that the universe has to offer. That's ingrained into our thinking constantly. Paul, in contrast, is coming from a God-centered point of view and that human beings are sinful and they deserve nothing good. Those are two very different places to be coming from, aren't they? But to understand Paul's argument, we need to remember his basic starting point. It is a God-centered point of view and that human beings are sinful and that they deserve nothing good. Paul is using the example of Pharaoh in the days of Moses, but bringing it closer to home and putting things in terms more familiar to us, the question could be asked, does God owe salvation to every person? And the answer is no. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. He's free to give salvation to anyone or no one at all. Salvation is something that God gives as an expression of his mercy, rather than it being a human right or something that is owed to us, something that we are entitled to. Do you remember the example of the t-shirt cannon that we talked about at the beginning? None of us are owed a t-shirt. No one has any claim upon God's mercy. No one is entitled to his mercy. If they were, it would no longer be mercy. Because by definition, mercy is given to the undeserving. The real surprise is not that God doesn't give salvation to everyone, but that he gives it to anyone. Now hearing that, it shorts our circuits of our self-centered, entitled selves. But it is the brutal truth. And I know it is a brutal truth for us to hear. He ends verse 18 with the words, And he, God, hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, although this may sound like something different, it's really the same idea that we've been talking about here in regard to God extending his mercy to whomever he wants. It's just the other side of it. And in the example of the Pharaoh of Egypt, it says in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and the Israelites, and it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And although it sounds contradictory to us, both of those things are true. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God's sovereignty doesn't remove human responsibility. Rather, God's sovereignty, it operates in such a way that it allows human beings to make meaningful choices which they are responsible for, while at the same time, God's sovereignty is carried out. His will is done. We're, see, we're not robots nor are we completely free from the sovereign hand of God. Do you remember what Paul said in Romans 1? 
about God giving human beings over to their sinful desires and choices. Well, the same idea is at play here. Pharaoh chose to resist God, and God gave him over to that choice. Timothy Keller expresses it this way, God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be hardened. Pharaoh can't claim to have been treated unfairly by God. He got what he wanted. At the same time, that carried out the purpose of God. Some might still object, saying, if, if God's sovereign will is always carried out, then why are we blamed for doing what we do? It, it seems that we are going to do whatever he has determined we're going to do. And so Paul continues in verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make one, make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So as said a moment ago, God's sovereignty does not remove human responsibility. Rather, God's sovereignty operates in such a way that it allows human beings to make meaningful choices which they are responsible for, while at the same time, God's sovereign will is carried out. We're not robots, nor are we completely free from the sovereign hand of God. How all of that operates in every situation, though, remains a mystery. Now, I believe the fact that we are constrained to living within the dimension of time is at least part of the answer for us. God exists outside of the dimension of time, so he sees everything, past, present, and future, as now. God sees the choices and actions I will make tomorrow at the same time as he sees the choices and actions that I made yesterday. I, however, am not able to see what's going to happen tomorrow until I get to tomorrow. I have to trust the Lord for what he knows about me and the rest of the creation. And his knowledge is so far above my own that I have no business judging his decisions. This is the point Paul makes in these verses when he says, who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. We humans are so arrogant and full of ourselves. We're so used to being at the top of the food chain on this planet that we forget that we are nowhere near the top of the chain when God is brought into consideration. We're like earthworms in comparison to God. Human beings don't like hearing that. We're used to being at the top. We're used to being in control and at the center of things. We're very entitled in our thinking. But if God is truly a God worthy of our worship, 
then he's far above us, and we should want him to be, right? We need to be careful about standing in judgment of God and forgetting that he's actually the judge of us. We need to also be careful about trying to make God into our image and more to our liking. He's the potter, and we're the clay. So in verse 22, it says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. In other words, although God is under no obligation to save any of us, he has chosen to save some of us. Those who turn to him in faith trusting in the provision of salvation that he has made through his son, Jesus Christ. We are the objects of his mercy. We were once not his people, but now we have become his people, and not just his people, but we are the children of the living God. We were once not his loved ones, but now we are his beloved ones. And Paul now returns in verse 30 to this initial issue he raised at the beginning of Romans 9, the Jewish question. Because, see, we've kind of taken a couple side roads here, right, in addressing some of these side issues. Verse 30, he comes back to his main. It says, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? A righteousness that is by faith but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. See, as the gospel spread throughout the Mediterranean world from its beginnings in Jerusalem, something unexpected was taking place. Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were much more receptive to the salvation that God offers through Jesus Christ than Jewish people were. The gospel had its origin with the Jewish people and their religion. The Jews were the people who worshipped the one true God, Yahweh, 
who had revealed himself to them in a special way, giving them their religious moral law through Moses. It was Jewish prophets through whom God spoke, promising the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah Jesus was himself a Jew, coming from the lineage of the most celebrated king of the Jews, David. It was to the Jewish people that Jesus spent almost all of his time teaching and performing miracles. It was to the Jewish people that the gospel was first preached, who were first invited to put their faith in Jesus as Messiah and receive salvation. Paul and the other apostles were all Jews themselves. But all of this did not result in the Jewish people, in large part, embracing salvation through the Messiah Jesus. Instead, people who had been following various pagan religions, believing in idols, and living unbelievably immoral lives, were the ones taking hold of the salvation that God was offering through Jesus. It's sad, really, to consider that the people who knew most about God did not come to know God when the Messiah they had hoped and prayed so long for finally appeared. And people who knew least about God, they came to really know him. Why? Why didn't the Jewish people embrace salvation through Jesus Christ Paul says, because the Jews pursued it, righteousness, justification, salvation, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They sought to obtain salvation through the careful observation of their religious and moral law. Or to put it in a way that's often expressed by many people in our day, they were trying to obtain salvation by being a good person. Bible scholar Robert Mounts wrote, The approach that says righteousness and salvation can be earned fails to grasp the enormity of sin. Our separation from God is so great that only He can bridge the gap. He chooses to do it entirely on His own for us. Our only responsibility is to accept by faith the finished work of Christ on our behalf. The stumbling stone the Jewish people stumbled over is the idea that salvation is received by faith rather than earned as a merit for exceptional moral behavior and religious observance. This is still a stumbling stone for people in our day, not just for Jews, but for all people. People find it difficult to accept the idea that they don't deserve salvation and they can't earn it. Say it another way. We are not entitled to salvation and we can't achieve it. We can only have it given to us as a gift from God. Now, if you're reading carefully, you'll notice 
that this stumbling stone is a person. It says, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. The stone is Jesus Christ. Receiving salvation requires us to humble ourselves, recognizing that we can't do it. Jesus taught this idea himself too many times. An example is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Verse 9 says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And you'll remember tax collectors were some of the most hated human beings on the planet then. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus Christ is a rock for everyone. It's all a matter of how we respond to him if he becomes a problem for us, or the solution for us. People stumble over him, refusing to acknowledge the greatness of their need. Or people grab hold of him as the only firm thing they can trust in. How have you responded to Jesus Christ? What kind of rock is he for you? Chapter 10, verse 1, Romans. I don't know what's going on with the lights. It says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. So Paul, he repeats his deep desire for the Jewish people to be saved, and then he also repeats what's keeping them from being saved. They are certainly zealous for their religion, he says, but their zeal has blinded them. They're continuing to hold to the idea that they can achieve righteousness, salvation, by carefully following their religious laws and rituals. And they are refusing to see that Jesus is the culmination of their law. That he's brought to an end their law as a way of salvation by fulfilling the law for us, doing what we can never do for ourselves. And he gives righteousness, he gives righteousness to everyone who believes. And so verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness 
that is by the law, the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the depth, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Rather than trying to be righteous by following the law, we need to trust in Jesus Christ who will give us righteousness. The law points us in the right direction for the kind of behavior that pleases God. But the law does not have any power to achieve what it demands. Verses 9 and 10, they contain the basic profession of faith for people to be saved. And what do these verses say? It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. This is an acknowledgement that we believe Jesus is God the Son, and we are placing ourselves under His authority as our God and King. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is an acknowledgement of what has been accomplished for us in and through Jesus Christ. First, that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah promised by and sent from God to us. Second, that Jesus lived among us for a time. Third, that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. Fourth, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he now lives forever interceding for us. And fifth, that as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, so we too will be resurrected. That's all included in when we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. All of that. Because you can't get to God raised him from the dead without believing all of those things. And it says you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You will receive salvation. You will be declared righteous by God. The Spirit of God will come and live in you and bring you to life spiritually. You will have eternal life. You will become a child of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says, believing with our heart and declaring with our mouth, it means we are entrusting our whole self to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. It's not the reciting of some magic words, but a fundamental changing of our point of view, the flipping of our mindset from, from one of self-centered dependence and ori orientation to Christ-centeredness in all things. Now, does that mean that we will no longer be self-centered in our thinking and behavior? <laughs> no. That kind of change is not possible without the life-changing work of the Holy Spirit. But there's a heartfelt, life-impacting change of attitude, isn't there? 
Verses 11 through 13 make it clear that this invitation is extended to everyone. It says, anyone who believes, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Calling on the name of the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord, it's, a, it, it, it's just a shorthand way of saying to believe in Jesus Christ as we have already described. Do you believe? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ rather than yourself? We're not entitled to this salvation, but we are invited by God to receive it. He wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to me. And if you will receive it and live it, you will know that you have indeed been chosen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for you giving it to us straight about reality. And we don't maybe understand everything, Lord, but we trust you. We trust you. And we put ourselves into your hands. We know they're good hands. We thank you for giving us salvation through Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making us righteous. Thank you for justifying us. Thank you for taking away our guilt. Thank you for giving us eternal life. I pray every single person here has done that, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.